0: So if you've got your Bibles with you, we're looking at Daniel chapter 3, continuing our series in this incredible book and continuing to follow that story of Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And again, I will do my best with the names, but apologies if I get them wrong. So Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it upon the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other providential gov- um, officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other providential officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, scyther, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace." Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, "'May the king live forever.'" Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the providence of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty." They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music... If you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace... The God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men when we tied and threw them into the fire? They replied, "Uh, certainly, Your Majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the op- uh, approached the opening of the fire furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors cra- crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed, their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces, and the houses be turned into piles of rubber, Rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Let's pray for Clive as he comes uh, to give God's word this morning. Father, thank you for this um, incredible story as we continue the journey with, with these uh, four characters and pray um, for all that you've placed on Clive's heart this morning. As he brings your word, may we be inspired, challenged, um, with hope to leave here different than when we entered. In your name, amen. amen.
1: Thank you, Ross. i just move this over. So I don't exclude anyone. Great. Thank you for praying, Ross. I'm just going to use an extra prayer this morning that is in this lovely book by uh, R.T. Kendall and his wife Louise called Great Christian Prayers from 2,000 Years of Christian Faith. And there's a prayer for each day. And for the 2nd of October, which will be the second day into my new role as a regional minister in the Yorkshire Baptist Association, uh, if I'd opened this book on that day, I'd have read this prayer by Keith Weston. I'm going to make it a prayer from my heart now. Holy Spirit of God, hide the preacher that he may be forgotten. Reveal the Saviour that his voice may be heard. His will obeyed and his name honoured. To the glory of God the Father. Amen. So we move on into week three and chapter three of this series, and I just want to tell you another story, a slightly more contemporary story, about a Romany gypsy. I'm not going to mention his name, um, because this does go out on the internet, Uh, but he is now a follower of Jesus, but he wasn't, and his lovely young wife, the mother of their children, had come to faith, and he was angry, and he was jealous, and he wanted nothing to do with a newfound faith in Jesus. But she and a growing community of believers started to uh, gather at Christchurch Baptist Church in Christchurch near Bournemouth, where I was pastor, and uh, it was very interesting. Many of them were not literate, they'd not been taught to read or write, so that had challenges for the way that we sang songs and the way we presented things, but it was a really wonderful experience. And yet this man, the more of his family and friends went to the church, the more angry he got. And one night he had a row with his wife about God, and she had been praying and praying and praying. It seemed to her the more she prayed for him to come to know God's love for himself personally, as she had, the worse he got. And the row was uh, was pretty nasty. And he charged out of the uh, caravan, not the house, uh, living in caravan, beautiful caravan actually. I went to do a pastoral visit in it, and he ch- jumped into his white van, and uh, he was a little bit the worse for wear for drink, sadly. And he went hurtling off in his white van full of anger. And he knew when he lost control of that white van that he was almost certainly going to die because of the context. I don't have time to tell you the details. But the one thing he did as he thought he was facing certain death was to shout a very short prayer, Save me, Jesus. That's what he shouted. Save me, Jesus. The white van was a complete and total wreck a write-off. Nobody could believe that he had survived. He had extensive shoulder damage as his shoulder was wrenched, as the, the van was crushed. But shortly following that, he committed his life to Jesus Christ. He knew that in that short prayer, God had saved him. Now, I just want to ask you to think for a moment, because today's title in chapter three is about daring to depend upon God's protection. Daring to depend upon God's protection. Have you ever been in a situation where you had to depend or you dared to depend upon God's protection? Anyone? Yeah? Have you ever felt so up against it, in so much trouble, that you just knew the only thing you could do, in a sense, was cry out to God the way that that Romany gypsy husband and father had cried out to God? Well, that's exactly what these three individual, faithful individuals, did. Last week uh, we heard about daring to declare God's truth. In week one we we looked at the fact that Daniel dared to be different. And next week you've got Jeff Lee, a personal friend and the pastor of PCC Plymouth Christian Centre, uh, Ealing Pentecostal Church, not too far from here. He's going to be. Pete Uh, preaching on daring to depend upon God's Spirit. And as you move forward as a church that's exactly what needs to happen. You need to dare to declare God's truth, dare to depend upon God's Spirit and dare to depend upon God's protection as well. Because as we'll see there are dark forces at work that seek to divide and spoil churches. So as we get into this I want to go back to that a stake in the ground that Daniel put there in chapter 1, the last time I spoke from this book to you. And it's a stake in the ground in a sense that says no compromise. Daniel was in a context of a pagan king in a pagan kingdom of Babylon. He'd been taken away with the exiles from from Judea and Jerusalem. The city had been besieged terrible things had happened but in a, in an attempt to assimilate or integrate into the community nebuchadnezzar this uh, pagan king took daniel and others into his service and he tried to corrupt them but we saw in chapter 1 and verse 8 daniel resolved not to be corrupted and that was true of these three individuals here as well and uh, we'll look at them, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who were given names, Hananiah, uh, replacement names for their Jewish names, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. The background to this story is that this pagan king has a pet project. He has a pet project. In the first three verses we see that he erects an image of gold. It's 90 feet high when we translate that from the original languages. It's not solid gold, but it's overlaid with gold. It's still going to cost an absolute fortune. He sets it up on the plain of Jura, verse 1, in the province of Babylon. and verse 2, then he summons satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, jurors, magistrates, all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image that he set up. All the people of the whole empire and the whole province of Babylon, he calls them, he's going to call them to bow down and worship this idol. So verse 3, they get there, the music plays, they all stand before it. Verse 4, the herald loudly proclaims, this is what you're commanded to do. People, nations, men of every language, as soon as you hear this music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. See, he's got this pet project to try and unite everyone under one false idol, one false idol. God. That's his desire. That's his project. It's his pride as this, uh, as this tyrant of a king that he wants people to bow down. And his pronouncement is that if you don't, you're going to be killed. You're going to go into the fiery furnace. But there is a group of faithful believers. There's a group of faithful Jewish people who will not bow the knee. Let's just look at verse 12 of chapter 3. It says here that uh, some people in a conspiracy try to make sure that these particular Jews are in that furnace. They say, there are some Jews, they speak to the king and say, there are some Jews whom you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who pay no attention to your king. They never serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. Bang on, absolutely true. They won't do it. But the background of this is incredibly sinister because you see these individuals resent these faithful believers deeply. Why? Because they've been given positions of prominence. Let's just track back to chapter 2 and verse 49. Have a look at chapter 2 and I'll read verse 49 for us. The king placed. Uh, we we'll verse forty-eight. Sorry, the king placed Daniel in a high position, lavished many gifts on him, made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon, and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Last week, Ross spoke about uh, wisdom and guidance. But what Daniel was doing here is declaring, with the wisdom and guidance God had given him, the absolute truth that God has revealed to him supernaturally—the truth that those leaning into dark powers, occultic powers magicians, astrologers and others, couldn't possibly know because he wasn't even willing to tell them the dream. And they say, well, only the gods could do that. Well, Daniel does it because Daniel has this hotline to God. He's equipped with visions and dreams and interpretation and Daniel does that. So this king places him over the entire province. He makes him ruler and in charge of all of its wise men. Verse 49, moreover at Daniel's request the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon while uh, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. So there are people, magicians, occultists, who are absolutely furious with Daniel and absolutely furious with these three Jews, these three faithful Jewish individuals, even though their lives were spared. The king was going to have all of them killed, but Daniel intercedes for them and their lives are spared, but the jealousy and the hatred bubbles up. you ever had anyone that's been jealous of you or hated you or despised you? It's a painful thing and it becomes murderous. Because the king is demanding that everyone worships an image of gold. And in the first seven verses which I've described to you of his pet project, his pride and his pronouncement, anyone who does not bow down and carry out what is idolatrous worship is going to be thrown into a terrible furnace. Now, it's not likely in the United Kingdom that you will be forced to worship a 90-foot idol, whether it's covered in gold or not. It's not likely that you will be led into such obvious idolatry. But the challenge for all of us, Christian and non-Christian, is that there are things that we can face which is a temptation into idolatry. It could be your career. It could be your wealth. You could find your security in your wealth. It could be in a particular relationship. It could be in something else that you put, anything that you put before God anything that you say is more important than God and his truth and living according to his truth is idolatry. The first commandment that the Jews knew was all about the fact there was only one God, one true God, and he alone is to be worshipped with everything that that they had. That's the truth. Anything against that was idolatry and this idol was erected. And this group of occultists were quite happy with that. This group of occultists are drawing on dark powers, and they want to actually bring these three men to harm because of their jealousy. Let's look at verses 8 to 12. Excuse me. In verse 8, at this time some astrologers, so they divined the future by the stars. I hope none of you out there are tempted to read your horoscopes, or go and visit a medium, or go and have your palm read, or anything like that, because it's strictly forbidden in scripture. Spiritualism and spiritism is of any kind is strictly forbidden and we have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Prophecy, revelation, knowledge, tongues interpretation, supernatural gifts of revelation. So we don't need all that stuff. Not because it's mumbo-jumbo but because it's dark. Occult means hidden in darkness, secretive and these occultists, these uh, Astrologers, they come forward in verse 8 and and we read that they denounce the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O King, live forever. You've issued a decree, O King, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. You can hear their jealousy almost there. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to your king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. You see, when someone is in an idolatrous situation, they want everyone else to join in with that idolatry. They want everyone else to follow that because it makes them feel better. And these occultists are absolutely resentful. Now let's uh, just look at chapter 2 and verses 10 to 17. We get the background a little bit clearer. Chapter 2, verses 10 to 17. The astrologers answered the king, there's not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer, occultist. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods and they do not live among men. Wow, listen to that. Except the gods. Well, there's only one god and the gods don't live amongst men, they say. Well, that would be true except Thousands of years later, Jesus Christ is going to come and walk planet Earth. Not only the Son of God, but God the Son. And a day is coming where God will live among men and women in his new kingdom. So you can see the forces of darkness are at work here. As we read on verse 12 of chapter 2, this made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. And men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. So they'd failed to interpret the king's dream because the king wouldn't even tell them the dream and they said that's not possible. When Daniel is confronted by the officers who wanted to take his life and the lives of all of these occultists too and all the, the three Jews that we're talking about, actually Daniel intercedes for them. Daniel asks for a chance to interpret for the king and God gives him the revelation and he does it. Quite amazing quite remarkable. So we can see what the background is here, but we cannot see what is unseen. We need to understand that by faith. Let me explain. When there is a battle going on, a spiritual battle, when spiritual forces are at work, it's not the people that you should be angry with and certainly not the people that you should hate, even those that have nothing to do with God. Because our battle is not with people, our battle is against powers and principalities and the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly realms. Let me explain. In Ephesians chapter 6 from verse 10, Paul is going to finish a letter to Christians in a place called Ephesus, which was full of idolatrous worship. And the church is being persecuted, but it's a strong, vibrant church. And he says to them uh, towards the latter part of the letter in chapter 6 and verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Not in your own strength. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can set your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Dark forces that you can't see, hidden occultic forces that you can't see. He goes on to say this, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand stand firm then and then he begins to mention the pieces of armor I'm not going through all of them but I'll just tell you the first one stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist This is a belt of truth This love letter from God This revelation which is utterly trustworthy and complete is what we need for wisdom and guidance and the truth from God. The truth that Daniel dared to declare. The truth that these three individuals lived by and would not compromise, but there are dark forces against them. You may remember that when Jesus, loved by his disciples with Peter as as the one maybe arguably closest to him, his closest friend, who loves Jesus, says to Jesus, oh you must not go to Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill you. Jesus knew that. That's why he was going to Jerusalem to die on a cross and be resurrected. And at that moment, he says to his closest friend, Get behind me, Satan. You have in mind the things of man, not the things of God. He's not suggesting, I don't think, that Peter is demonized or possessed or anything like that. I don't like that word, possession. But demons can infiltrate human beings and manipulate them. I don't think that was happening. He was just tempted. He was speaking carnally. He was speaking out of his love for Jesus, yes. But he didn't see the higher purpose of God. And out of a false understanding of love, he goes completely against the will of God. And Jesus loves Peter. He's going to call him the rock. But he recognises there are dark forces at work behind Peter, tempting Jesus. And as these occultists expose these three, this pagan king becomes furious, this furious pagan king. His pride is pricked, his pomposity is stirred. He had been so fond of them and Daniel, but he's fickle It's no longer expedient for him to put up with them. Just look at verses 13 to 15, back in Daniel chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods, or worship the image of gold that I've set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? They know exactly what God. The only true God. So this furious pagan king threatens them. He's got a short memory, hasn't he? Listen to chapter 2. Again, listen to what he said in verse 46. King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel, paid him honour and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. I shouldn't think Daniel liked that. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. He was able to interpret the dream. And then as we've read in verse 49... Daniel requests and the king agrees to appoint Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, administrators over the whole province of Babylon. He's fickle, it's not expedient. They've stepped to cross him. Now sometimes when you cross people, they just get so angry. Ever experienced that? But there's a faith-filled few that won't give up. There's a faith-filled few that won't give up. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. By the way, I just feel at this moment, I want to tell you this this message was prepared a year ago. This series was prepared over a year ago. Chapter 3, verse 12. But there are some Jews whom you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of God absolutely, they wouldn't do that. Well, this is what they do do. Let's read from verse 16 to verse 18 about what these faith-filled few do. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us and save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand. Now, if we pause there, that might be naïve. Because everyone in this life will face things we don't understand, hardships we never look for. We'll ask the question, why God? Are you letting us down? Where are you? Where were you in that? What about this sickness? What about that relationship strife and trouble? They would sound naive if we stopped there. The God we serve is able to save us from it and he will rescue us from your hand, O King. But then the next verse, verse 18, they say this, but even if he does not... But even if he does not, even if he does not, we want you to know, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. They refuse to compromise. They're not going to go there. Even if he does not, they're not going to serve his gods or worship his image. So a fiery fate awaits them. A fiery fate. This incredible, furnace, this instrument of absolute murder. Let's just read uh, verses 19 to 23. Nebuchadnezzar was furious with these three and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. There are probably seven sets of huge bellows that people worked on to, to feed more oxygen in, to increase the intensity Verse 20, he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turzens, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. King's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. They're, t- they're bound up tight. The guys that took them there couldn't even get close enough without dying themselves. This is their fate. Let- let's-, let's look at the fiery furnace, because the next thing we want to understand is what the king sees. Let's look at Daniel chapter 3 and verses 24 to 25. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement. He asked his advisors, weren't there three men? And we th- tied up and threw them in the fire. They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men he's close. (laughs) He sees four shapes of men, four individuals, and indeed one is also a man. Walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Close but completely wrong. Not a son of the gods, the son of the only true God. Wow. Wow they experience a complete deliverance. Listen to verses 26 to 27. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants, listen to him again now, servants of the most high God. He's back onto that now. Come out, come here. So Shadrach Meshach and Abednego come out of the fire and the satraps prefects governors and royal advisers crowded around them they saw that the fire had not harmed their body nor was a hair of their head singed their robes were not scorched and there was no smell of fire on them now i remember when i was a, a housemaster uh, we had a, about 40 to 50 boys in the house we used to f- throw the best bonfire night parties and we got get all the girls from the girls boarding house over, and we'd have this fantastic uh, bonfire party with fireworks and a huge bonfire. If I was assessed back then with the current rules and regulations for health and safety, I would have been out of a job. Not proud of it, but it was just different those days, know what I mean? And I can tell you afterwards, I would stink of smoke and fireworks. Clothes had to go straight in the wash. These guys didn't have a whiff of smoke on them. The very bonds that that bound them, that held them, that chained them, they were the things that got burned, but not a hair on a head. Another thing I'm not very sensible about is barbecuing. Anyone into barbecuing? This was a real summer for barbecuing, wasn't it? Don't know why, but Marlon and I didn't do it once, but it was a real summer for barbecuing. But the last time I got my barbecue out, and it's one of those fancy ones, it's got the kind of lava so- lava rocks, and it's got the big gas canister, and you turn that on, but you can't always hear it, so you get, your, you get your ear down, you're not sure, then you fiddle around with the matches or the lighter, and by the time you do that, you get your, your, uh, your head over it, if you're stupid like me, then you strike the match, and it goes boof, like that, and you haven't got any eyebrows left, or your fringe is singed. These men didn't have a single singe mark. Complete deliverance. And listen to Nebuchadnezzar's declaration in the light of this, verses 28 and 29. He says, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who has sent his angels. so he thinks, and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego will be cut to pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble or rubber, for no other God can save in this way. No other God can save in this way. No other God can save in this way. One more time, no other God can save in this way. See, the one who was with them was a theophany, theophanos, it means an appearing of God. It's Jesus, the one who walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. It's Jesus in there. I'm absolutely convinced of that. I can't actually establish and prove it in a sense, but I am utterly convinced that it's Jesus in there with them. And it's of Jesus that we know that no one can be saved except through him. Let me just go to Acts chapter 4 very quickly, because in Acts chapter 4, we see that two other brave men, Peter and John, this is after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, after his crucifixion, They've seen the risen Christ, they've brought healing into the streets and they're up before the Sanhedrin. The religious leaders are rejecting them, they've warned them not to speak and then they to warned them again not to speak of this Jesus. And these two brave men in Acts 4 from verse 13 say, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected which has become the capstone. And then he says this, Acts four twelve, salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Let let me try and make a, a point as clearly as I can here. These are unschooled men but what they noted was they'd been with Jesus and they were amazed the authority and clarity and courage with which they spoke. If you look after my name on one of the letters I've written to support our asylum seekers, you'll see that I say to Sonia, put it all down. Reverend Dr. Clive Bernard. B-S-C, P-G-C-E, MTh, DMin, and a diphtheol thrown in for good measure. I'm not trying to impress anyone because that scripture says it's not about how schooled you are, it's how much time you're spending with Jesus. How are you doing on that one? You see, the powers that be are impressed by things like letters and schooling and qualifications and knighthoods and things like that. But what God's impressed with is our heart and how close we walk with him and how obedient we are to him and how we model our life on his love letter from heaven and the revelation through his son Jesus. That's what he's impressed with. And no other God can save in this way and there's no other name by which anyone can be saved. Peter and John before the Sanhedrin said that. So I'm going to close with the same image that I used the last time I preached here. I can't think of a better way to finish my uh, morning preaching at Motley Baptist Church. It's a a picture of of, uh, a piece of art by Ruth Gregory. Some of you have seen it before, but not all. It's called Scarred Majesty. Ruth loves the stories of C.S. Lewis of the Narnia Chronicles, and undoubtedly this is influenced by Aslan. I mentioned last time there's no whiskers there because she hadn't completed the artwork, a big canvas she was giving to her mother. As a token of love. But if you look closely at the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, according to Revelation 5, chapter 5, you'll see scars on his brow and scars on his snout and scars between his eyes if you look closely. But then look into the eyes. You'll see that they're kind, you see that they're soft, you'll see that they're loving. Because God is love and he doesn't want us to hate anyone, people who have different views to us. Because our battle's not with flesh and blood, our battle's with powers and principalities. But he does want us to speak up for truth and not compromise and stand for truth. And those eyes are not just kind and soft and loving, they're searching. They're like the eyes that looked at the rich young ruler and loved him but let him walk away sad He wasn't willing to deal with the barrier in his life. Those eyes are authoritative. You see, Aslan is not a tame lion. And in Daniel chapter 3 and verse 25, Daniel chapter 3 and verse 25, I'll read it for us. Nebuchadnezzar said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Hold that thought, almost there but completely wrong, and go with me to John 19, verses 1 to 7. And with this scripture, I'll close. Jesus is being sentenced to be crucified, John 19, 1 to 7. Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged had him scarred (laughs) severely. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, that speaks of kingship, mocking, put it on his head, they clothed him a purple robe, purple speaks of royalty, in a mockery, and went up to him again and again saying, hail king of the Jews, and they struck him in the face, scarring the majesty above all majesties. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews, look, I'm bringing him out to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And when Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. As soon as the chief priest and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. And the Jews insisted, we have a law. According to the law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. Not a son of the gods, the son of God, Jesus. And then later on, if you keep reading the passage, you'll see that these so-called God-lovers, these religious Jews, Pilate asked them again, shall I crucify your king? And they say, we have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. And finally Pilate handed him over to be crucified. Scarred majesty. In this life... In this life, you and I will from time to time bear scars. I've copped a few, and you'll cop a few if you stand up for God, if you love like God, if you recognise that your battle is not with human beings, but with, uh, with powers and principalities, not with flesh and blood. If you keep loving, it doesn't mean that you won't get accused, you won't get hated, and you won't get scarred. But know this, that like those three in that fiery furnace, like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, if you stand up for the truth, it may be that God has a different way. Three people will be baptised here tonight, two are Iranian, one is an Iranian Kurd. They're nailing their colours to the mast. If they then do, God forbid, get sent back to their country, they know what they're risking. But they're standing up before you tonight and they're standing up for truth and they're standing up to declare Jesus Christ is Lord. We can do nothing more. Let's stand together as our musicians come back and let's pray. Father, thank you for this historic church Thank you for all that it has stood for for 149 years, and we pray together that as it enters its 150th year and anniversary, it will continue to stand as those three stood before and in that fiery furnace. We pray for those who are present and those who are not present and those who are no longer present. And ask for your blessing, your love, your reconciliation, your grace, your mercy, your care. And pray that uh, Father Muttley Baptist Church will continue to depend and dare to stand, depending upon your protection, upon your truth, and upon your spirit, and upon your grace. And we ask this in the name of the one who is scarred majesty, Jesus Christ. Amen.